Good to see you. So it's time to say Merry Christmas, right? So look at somebody and say Merry Christmas with all the enthusiasm you can get, all right? All right. I wasn't sure if you were going to be enthusiastic or a little bah humbug or whatever, so I like it. So in that Christmas spirit, grab your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, and then I want you to mark that place, and I also want you to mark... Matthew chapter 4. We're beginning a series today called There is a King, and over the next uh, few weeks, we're going to be looking at the different ways that God sent not just a child, not just a baby, but a king that was going to rule over our hearts and obviously is going to rule over eternity as well. But today, I want to talk to you about Jesus being a king of hope. And I just want to start off by reading Isaiah chapter 9, starting with verse 2. A very common passage at Christmas. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And for those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Now, before you, we even go away from that, this is a prophetic writing. It's talking about future things. And so it is telling us, Isaiah, God telling us through his prophet Isaiah, that in the people in walking in darkness will eventually see a great light. And those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine on their circumstances and their lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to open up your word and Lord, for the honor of being able to open up our hearts to receive that word. I pray that you anoint me as I speak today, anoint the words you've given me to say, anoint our ears to hear them, our hearts to receive them, so you may accomplish your perfect will in our lives. And Lord, as we prepare our hearts, I already pray for the end of our service this morning as we pray for our needs of, of our uh, family, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that you will go ahead and prepare their hearts, O oh Lord, to receive the answer that is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we'll be careful to give you the praise for all of it. In Christ's holy name, we ask these things. Amen and amen. How many of you have ever gone into a situation thinking it was going to turn out one way and it turned out completely different? Yeah, you know how that feels? You just go, you, I mean, you think you've got it figured out. You think you've got it analyzed. You think everything's going to work out. And it goes in a completely opposite direction. Let me give you an example of that. How, um, imagine you are driving to work early on a weekday, but you're running late for work. I know it's hard to imagine, right, that you're running late for work. But just imagine with me, you're running late for work. And so you don't realize the speed that you're going. You're probably sure you're speeding a little bit, but you're really, really in a hurry, and you're trying not to break the law, so you grab your phone, and you're trying to plug it in to get into, you know, the Apple CarPlay, so you don't have to use the phone with your hands, using a hands-free device and all of that, and then you feel yourself sort of, you know, sort of drifting left, and you pull it back right, and you're drifting left, and you pull it back right, and you finally get settled in, and you're on your way, and you're still running late, and you look up, and you see in your rearview mirror blue lights, and you pull over, the officer comes, and it takes a little while to get up there. Comes up, says, I need your license, your registration, and your proof of insurance. You give him all those things. He goes back, and then he comes back to the car and says, do you know why I pulled you over? He said, well, I guess I might have been speeding a little bit. And he says, no, actually, you were doing 75 in a 30-mile-an-hour school zone. You weave twice over the center line, and your tag is expired, and your insurance has lapsed. 
And in your mind, you're thinking, I wonder what's going to happen to me. And the policeman says, I should take you out of this car, put handcuffs on you, arrest you, put you in jail, throw the book at you, and throw away, throw away the key. But I have good news for you. I'm not going to do that. And you think, are you going to let me off with a warning for this? He says, no, no, no. You're the one millionth person we've pulled over. And because of that, for the rest of your life, we're going to give you $1 million for the rest of your life. Now, that is such a ridiculous reversal of fortune. You're like, nothing like that could ever happen. I mean, it's incomprehensible. It's inconceivable. You cannot even begin to fathom that. And you think, oh, that's beyond the spectrum of even trying to imagine it. In that mindset, I want you to understand Isaiah chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 4 is such a complete reversal of fortunes that it is almost incomprehensible. When the prophet is writing the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is the prophet of God, God is speaking to him. The people of Israel have been wandering from God and coming back to God, wandering from God and coming back to God. And God has now going to give them over to their inclinations of their heart. They're going to be punished for their sins. Some of Israel are going to be punished by being taken captive by the Assyrians. Some of them are going to be punished by taking, being taken captive by the Babylonians. And the ones that are being taken captive by the Babylonians are going to stay there for 70 years before they're allowed to return back. As a matter of fact, the prophet Isaiah tells them there's going to be a long time where people are going to occupy your land. You're going to live in this land. It's the land you grew up in. It's the land you love, but you're not going to rule this land. You're not going to be in charge of this land. There's going to be a foreign country that is occupying this land for 400, excuse me, 500 out of the next 600 years. And of the 100 years that you're going to rule it yourself, you're going to be in constant civil war with each other trying to figure out who's in charge. That's the prophecy. See, we read prophecy like Isaiah, and we read the people walking in darkness have seen it. We'll see a great light. Those who are in a land of deep darkness, the light will shine. And we think, what an absolutely encouraging word. But immediately preceding this is Isaiah telling them all the things that are going to happen to them. Imagine this. You've lived in your country all of your life. You've lived in your city all of your life. You have established your home, and imagine the word of the Lord comes from a true prophet of God, and it says, some of you and your families are going to be taken away to a foreign land, and you're going to serve in slavery for 70 years. I'm going to allow you to come back, but you aren't going to have a say in your future for the next 600 years, except for a small period of time where you're going to be at war with each other. Thus saith the Lord. Look, nobody puts that prophecy on their refrigerator, right? No, that's not your daily affirmations from the Lord, right? And yet it's a word from the Lord. So we read that and we think, what an encouraging word. This is not for encouragement. This is to give them a glimmer of the hope that is waiting for them. See, Isaiah chapter 9 is a very difficult passage because it follows some of the harshest prophecies of God over his people. Here's what it says. 
Nevertheless, after he's told them the things that are going to happen, verse one, nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when the Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. And the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. What Isaiah is saying is there is great future promise for this nation, but it's not going to be like you think it's going to be. And so the people begin to grasp with that. Now, in understanding that, we fast forward to Matthew chapter 4. This is at a pivotal time in Jesus' life because John the Baptist, the Bible says, is his predecessor, the one who goes before him and tells people, I am not the one, but I am, I am setting up the stage for the one, the one who comes after me. I'm not even worried to, uh, worthy to latch the shoes that he wears. I baptize in water. He'll baptize in fire and the Holy Spirit, one coming. And then John is taken off the scene, and Jesus is now thrust into the scene. And look at the interesting part of Matthew chapter 4. It references back to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, it says, When Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. So John is ministering in Judea. It's the southern part of Israel. It's where Jerusalem is. That's where the holy people live. The temple's in Jerusalem. If you wanted to go do anything holy, you had to go to the temple, right? And that's where the holy people lived. Up in the Galilee area is called Galilee of the Gentiles. That's where the pagans lived. That's where the Samaritans were part of. These are the people that did not trust God and intermarried with the Assyrians. And now all of the mixed blood is there, and they don't know whether they're truly Jewish or part Assyrian. They don't know whether they're pagan or true worshipers of God. And so they just cast them out, and they think, that is a land that we don't want to be a part of. Jesus departs from there in Judea and goes to Galilee. It says in verse 13, he he went first to Nazareth, then he left there and moved to Capernaum beside the Sea of Galilee in the region, notice this, of Zebulun and Naphtali. That is the exact region that Isaiah talks about that is going to happen when God's glory is going to be seen in a place that they did not think his glory could possibly be. If his glory was going to be seen, they thought it's going to be in Judea and Jerusalem. But Isaiah said, this is where his glory is going to be seen. In verse 14, it says, this fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Notice, Isaiah says that they will see in prophecy. Matthew says they have seen now. It's prophecy fulfilled. He goes on and says, and for those who lived in the land where death cast its shadow, a light has shined. Isaiah said that it will shine forth. Matthew says it has shined now. And notice this. And from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. So we think that's a reasonable thing to preach. This is radical for the Jewish people. This is radical for them because they didn't think they needed to repent because their link to God 
was not through a personal relationship or a mediator or a great high priest. Their link to God, they believed, was because they were linked through their ancestor, Abraham. And because Abraham had a connection with God, then they therefore had a connection with God. And it was special, and nobody else had a connection with God, but they did. But Jesus says, it's not because of your relationship with Abraham, and it's not because of your relationship with Moses or anyone else. He says, repent of your sins and turn to God. He says, this is a great, huge reversal in life. You think you've got it all together. You think this is the way that will get you in the right path with God. But I'm telling you, you've got to repent of the way that you've been living. Repent means to turn around, put it in reverse, and go the opposite direction. That's what repent means. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean just to stop. It doesn't mean just to be sorry. It means that you literally turn around. He says, turn to God, and he said, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Isaiah says, it's not always going to be like this. But Matthew tells us when Jesus says, it's also not going to be like you think it's going to be as well. So how do we adjust? How do we bring those um, seemingly conflicting statements and bring them together? A couple of things I want you to see, and then we're going to pray this morning. Number one is this. God came to live in our darkness. Notice Isaiah says it. Matthew quotes it. The people who are walking and living in darkness have seen a great light. This is in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. There is, the Jewish people would say there's nothing good about this area at all. And no one living there, there's nothing good about them. If you live there, you thought you were outcast. You thought that, well, maybe I can one day get accepted you know, by, the, by the Jewish people and the religious leaders and all of these things. No, it's there he chose to begin the ministry. It's there he chose. Once John was arrested, John was the one prior to him saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John had a baptism of repentance. The only other baptism they had ever heard about was people being baptized into Judaism and recognizing as an outward sign that they were converting to Judaism. And now, no Jew had ever been baptized before. That was John's message. And Jesus picks that message up and says, repent of your sins. Turn to God. The kingdom of heaven is near. And he begins it in what they feel like Isaiah said was going to be a dark place and a dark time. Jesus begins his ministry. And Matthew says, and not only did it begin, he fulfilled everything about it. Now, what is darkness? Well, darkness is certainly sin. But darkness is not only just a circumstance. Darkness is also a place. There was a feeling, an idea, that if you lived in this area, you couldn't be near God. That God wasn't anywhere near you. And so you felt like outcast. That God would not occupy that land but Jesus comes into the darkest place to what people thought were the worst people, and he began his ministry there. Sin, yes, is darkness. But darkness is any place that we, want, we don't want anyone else to see. It's the places that you hide. And certainly there are sins and temptation that you hide from people. There are also places that you hide Places that you don't want other people to know about. Places that you worry, you have fear, 
You have anxiety. You think that something that's happened in your past is going to keep you from something in your future. You think if someone finds out about your past that they won't like you, love you, have any relationship with you at all anymore. These are the dark places that we hide in our lives. Can I just tell you something? Jesus is not afraid of the darkest places in your life. Jesus came as a baby. Now look, he could have come. He could have done everything he wanted to do. He could have come. He could have descended from the clouds in, in priestly robes with a crown and a throne. He could have done all those things, but instead he was born as a baby, raised as a human so he could identify fully with us. But can I just tell you something? There is nothing messier than a birth of a baby and the raising of a small child. If you've ever done it, can I get an amen? Nothing. And that's how he chose to came into this world. That's how he came into your circumstances. He's not afraid of your mess. Not in the least. He came to live with us in our darkness. And I just want to tell you, wherever you are this morning, whether you're in the room, whether you're watching online, listen to me. Your darkest place cannot hide from the light of Jesus Christ. Yes. Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I travel across the world, across the sea, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. It goes on to say, even the darkest places, even night is not dark to you. For the night is as day to you. And darkness is his light to you. So what does that mean? That means you don't have to hide these things from God. He already knows about them. He came to live with you in that darkness, to be with you there. But he's not content for you to stay there. Second thing I want you to see is this, is that God came to bring us out of our darkness. He came to bring us out of our darkness. No darkness is so great that God can't illuminate it with his divine presence. And God is not content for you to continue to walk in your darkness. He came so he could bring you out. Now, this is the amazing thing, is that people walking in darkness, if you've always walked in darkness, you don't even know it's dark. So if you've always walked in sin, you don't even know what light looks like. If you have for so long been dealing with things in your life, you've forgotten what it's like to look at things from a different perspective, to see things from an idea of freedom, to walk out in victory. If you constantly deal with depression, you may have forgotten what it feels like to have joy in your life. These are real things. If you're dealing with um, um, grief from circumstances in your life, maybe, maybe it is. Maybe it's a loss of a loved one. Maybe you're grieving over a broken marriage or a broken family. Whatever that is in your life, you've forgotten what it's like. Can I just tell you something? God can illuminate it with, your pre with his presence, but if you've been there so long, you've forgotten what it looks like and feels like. Let me explain it to you like this. When I was six years old, I was in first grade, and I was constantly, constantly getting in trouble in class. I know, hard to believe, I get it. Constantly. And they would assign us, um, I don't know if your teachers did this, but the way you got the seating chart was you basically, they alphabetical, right? Okay, W's in the back. 
So always in the back, always getting in trouble. This was starting in kindergarten. This was in first grade. And so finally, the teacher was like, I've had enough of you come up front right here. And so I get on the front row and she's explaining something and she calls on me and I was like, I don't know. I don't know. So she goes to somebody else. I'm bored. So I'm start, I start talking to somebody. I get in trouble. I continually get in trouble. And finally, she said, I want you to tell me the answer to this. And I went, I don't even know what you're looking at. I don't know what you're pointing at. And she's like, come here. I go right up to the board and I get right up to the board and I go, oh, oh yeah, that's the answer for that. And she called my parents and said, he might need some glasses. <laughs> we go, and sure enough, I did. We go to the, um, the optometrist. Um, I get glasses. Turns out I had 2,400 vision. If you don't know what that means, that means if you're driving down the road and the, if I have 2,400 vision, the sign that I can see from 20 feet away, a normal person could see from 400 feet away. That's, that's the vision. If you wonder what those meanings are, okay? So... I got home that day. I put on the glasses. I get home that day. I walk out. My dad's like, let's go inside. I'm just outside going. It's like, what are you doing? I was like, see those clouds? Like, you, you see, those are leaves on the tree. They're not just, that's just green. I go inside and I'm like, I walk in. I sit on the couch. I was like, oh, did you know that you can see the TV from here? All of those times my parents said, get away from that TV, it's gonna ruin your eyes, right? My parents felt terrible, terrible about it. And they, this was what they asked me. They said, why didn't you tell us? And I said, I thought everybody saw like this. I knew no different. And it was only till I could see something different that I knew that I could live differently. You may be in the darkest place in your life, but when Jesus shines his light of glory and grace and power into your life, it changes everything. And now you can walk in a way that you've never walked before. He is coming to you in your darkness but he is not content to leave you there. The third thing I want you to see is this, is that God came to turn our lives from despair to hope. Proverbs 13 and 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. If I can't hope in something, it literally, physically, emotionally, spiritually will make you sick. Now, let me tell you what hope is. This is Christmas, right? Everybody hopes at Christmas, right? You know, I hope I get this. I hope I get a raise at the job, a bonus at the job. I hope my family shows up. I hope some family doesn't show up. I hope I get what I want. You know, I mean, you, you throw out hope as this wishful thinking. That is not biblical hope. Hope in Scripture is defined as a confident expectation that what I believe is actually going to happen. A confident expectation that in whom I believe is actually going to do what they say they're going to do. So the power and the majesty of Jesus is real and the words and the promise of Jesus are true and they are right in my life. That is biblical hope, a confident expectation. 
When we misplace our hope, it always winds up in disappointment. And continual disappointment leads to despair. And despair is literally defined as no hope. So what do we misplace our hope in? There's so many things that we choose to put our hope in instead of Jesus. Because Jesus said, repent, turn to God. Look at me, I'm your hope. We misplace our hope, we put our hope in an outcome. This is my circumstance, this is what I want. And so my hope becomes what I want, not who I need. And when we don't get what we want, we blame the one that we need for not giving us what we want. Placing your hope, the foundation of your life in an outcome will lead you to despair and disappointment. But placing your hope in the one who created you, who knit you together in your mother's womb, who has destined you and has a purpose for your life and an eternity waiting for you will never let you down. We put our hope, when I mean hope, we put our hope, our foundation in a relationship, in a spouse. Listen to me. For all of you that are married and want to get married, listen to me, okay? Don't put that pressure on your spouse. The pressure to complete you is not their responsibility. Jesus Christ completes you. They compliment you. And stop putting that pressure on them that's something only Jesus can fill. Let me go on. We put our hope in children. Come on, somebody. Listen, parents, grandparents, listen to me. First of all, I love you. You know when I say that, something's going to come, right? <laughs> but listen to me. Don't wrap all of your life around your children. They are yours to raise, and they are yours to give back to the Lord and to present them to him in order for them to live the godly lives that they are supposed to live. That is your goal in stewarding the joy and the responsibility of having children. I have done this, I have been in full-time ministry for 25 years and I have seen it over and over again where parents wrap everything around a child or their children, including their own relationship. They don't even know who each other is outside of that child. They will bring them to church. They will volunteer in kids' ministry. They'll volunteer in student ministries. They'll get them all the way graduated. Then that child leaves and that, those parents are left decimated, wondering, we have no relationship with each other. We've got no relationships from Christian community when we don't even like each other anymore. And they wind up in counseling or they wind up separated. All because they put their hope in the wrong thing. Don't get me wrong. I don't hate your children. Listen. <laughs> your job, your role is to present them to the Lord as a reasonable offering of your stewardship. And that's it. Care for them. Nurture them. But don't put your hope in them. People put their hope in a job or a career. People put their hope in a person 
outside of one that you necessarily have a personal relationship with. I've seen it over and over again. I've seen people put their hope in a pastor or a preacher or an evangelist and wind up getting disappointed. I've seen people put their hope in a politician and continually are disappointed. I've seen people put their hope in a podcaster or an influencer thinking they're saying all the things I like to hear and eventually they're disappointed. Stop putting your hope in things that aren't supposed to be hoped in. Your hope is in Jesus Christ and him alone. And we can even misplace hope at Christmas. Listen, hope is not in a baby. Hope is not in the Virgin Mary. Hope is not in the shepherds. It's not in the wise men. It's not in the angels. It is in Jesus. Hope was not born at Christmas. Hope is a king who already existed. Micah 5.2 says he's a king who was coming forth from old and from the ancient of days. Unlike any other birth, Jesus at Christmas time was not a beginning. It was a becoming. It wasn't a start. It was a commission of his life. He was not created. He became, and he became everything that you and I would ever need. And when our hope is rightly placed in Jesus rather than all the other things, then even in the face of my circumstances, I can have joy, strength, courage, and peace. When I was, I don't know, probably nine or 10 years old, my father and I were, um, we were getting ready to hunt the next morning. We were on my grandfather's property. And so it was after dark one night, and we went out to make sure that the stand was ready. We made sure that um, the, um, the feeders were ready. So uh, we went out, and we had the little, um, uh, the little lights on your head, and um, it's pitch dark outside. I don't know my way. It's on my grandfather's property. I lived, I mean, I've been there, but this is a path I hadn't taken before. My dad, though, grew up here, so he knows every single place. So we're going, and um, it's in like um, late September, early October. Now, this is South Mississippi, so at that time of year, you're lucky if it's below 85 at that point, okay? It's not cold weather at all. And so snakes are still abundant, and I don't know if you know this, I don't like big worms, much less snakes, Ever, I mean, literally. So I've got this. My dad is looking out, and he's, you know, his head's pointing this way, and the beam is out here. My beam is like this, <laughs> looking around, filled with fear, because I don't know what's coming out, and I know snakes are all over the place. The next morning we wake up, and I've got fear kind of welling up, going, oh, i got to go down that same path. But now it's light outside. It's starting to dawn, and we're going to go get into the place. Now I don't need a lamp on my head. There's enough light to see around me. And now, same path, same exact path, looks completely different to me with no fear because I can see everything. This is the way it is when you put your hope in Jesus Christ. He literally shines into the dark places of your life and even when your circumstances do not change, you walk without fear. It's what David said. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, yet I will fear no evil because you are with me. It changes everything. And when my hope 
is turn to Jesus instead of all these other things. When Jesus says, repent of your sins, turn to me, give it to me, then Jesus begins to turn my life around. Even when my circumstances may not change, and they may not change for a little while, or may that, and they may not change ever, but he'll certainly change me in the process. But even if I'm dealing with the same circumstances, or if he brings me out of those circumstances, he begins to turn things around in my life. And no matter what I'm facing, it's that moment where the Bible talks about that God does something remarkable, and he can turn mourning into dancing and sorrow into joy, death into life, sickness into health, worry into peace, fear into boldness, weariness into strength, and problems into praise. Because there's a king that can Came in our world so that we could live in his kingdom forever. Yes. About a, probably dozens of years ago, there was a man named S.M. Lockridge who was a pastor. He's famous for a portion of a sermon that he gave. And I don't want to paraphrase it, I want to read to you. It's called That's My King. I want you to see through his words how lofty and wonderful Jesus Christ is, how much bigger he is than your circumstances so that when he begins to shine his light, you'll trust him to turn things to him. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful, and he's impartially merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged and he rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. He is the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness, and he's the highway of holiness, and he is the gateway of glory. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible and he's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind and you can't get him off your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. 
Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. He's my king. He's your king. He's the king of glory. He's the king of hope. He's the soon-coming king. He's the Lord of lords and the king of kings. That's my king. Come on, give the Lord praise in this place. And I don't know what darkness that you face, but I'm telling you that king is beckoning you to turn it to him and let him bring you out today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes, please? If your darkness involves sin and the way that you're living, today the Lord is calling you home to him. And if that's you, I invite you to pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are indeed enough that you are greater than anything, that you're greater than my past, you're greater than my sin, you're greater than my desires in my life. And so I ask in the name of Jesus that you forgive me of my sins and the way I've lived in the past and that you lead me from this day forward. I yield to you, your King, your Lord of my life, and I will never be the same. I'm gonna ask everyone to just pray this prayer of profession with me. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. Come on, Jesus, I give you my life. Now, your head's bowed and your eyes closed. If that's you, you know when you came in this place, things aren't right between you and the Lord. But today, you're making a decision to follow him for the first time or the first time in a long time. I'm not here to embarrass you, but I do want to pray for you this week. If that's you, be bold enough and just raise your hand really high and say, that's me, Pastor. I want to, I'm accepting him, and I want you to pray for me this week. Keep it up just a moment, please. Thank you. Just a moment. Thank you. God bless you. Amen. Amen. Just a moment, please. Amen. Amen. You can put them down. Lord, I thank you for hope that has been applied. Hope that is offered is one thing. Hope that has been applied and received is another. Thank you for those who have received that hope in their hearts today. I thank you for changed lives, for redeemed souls. And in these next few moments, Lord, as we pray for each other, I ask for you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, as people seek prayer for whatever it is they're facing, whether it's a dark time because of something physically or relationally or emotionally, maybe it's financial, maybe it has to do with the job, whatever that is, Lord, I pray that as they turn that to you, that you'll begin to turn their circumstances around, but more than that, that you'll turn their perspective around and see you as high and lifted up, Lord of glory and Lord over every situation in their life. Let a light shine in to their darkness right now, Lord, as you bring them out in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me, please. I'm gonna ask our prayer team to come and prepare to pray with you. And if you have a need, whatever that need is, while we worship together, I'm gonna ask you to come and just ask one of our prayer teams to pray with you and believe in faith that Jesus is enough to bring you out right now. Let's worship, pray, and believe together. Turn to heaven and spoke your name. 
Father, we thank you right now for all that you have done in our hearts today, from the worship that we sang earlier today, for the many people who had difficulties in their life and they chose to speak the name of Jesus over it during our worship. We thank you for that powerful name. We thank you for the response and the belief and the faith of your people to give their needs to you. And Lord, collectively, corporately, Lord, we disavow the hope that we place in other things and place it in you and you alone. Because hope is not a theory or a concept or a philosophy. Hope is a person and his name is Jesus. And so we give you the honor, we give you the glory, we give you the praise today for all that you have done and all that you are doing and all that you have in store for us. For you are good and you are great and you are greatly to be praised. Amen and amen. Come on, give the Lord your highest praise right now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Hey, can you celebrate with me? Four people gave their hearts to Jesus Christ today. Come on. If you made that decision today or in the last few weeks, we would love to help you get started on this walk with Jesus Christ. Uh, or maybe if you just want some more information about Mount Perry North, how you get plugged in, discover your gifts and your passions. Um, there is a team that will be down here at the end of the service, the Grow Team. And uh, if you'll come down, give them two minutes of your time, they'll get all the information they can to you in a quick amount of time and uh, get you on your way. We're just excited that you're here, excited for the decisions you've made, and decided for the, excited about the opportunities that we have to be able to partner in ministry with you. Before you leave today, just let you know, I'm normally out in this lobby today. I'm going to be out in this lobby. So if I don't get a 
chance to see you a lot. Stop by, say hello on this side, um, and allow me the privilege to bless you today according to Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, let's give our response from Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. God bless you, folks. Love you. Have a great week.